This is the Living Prophets Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Maxmeister. In this episode, I'm exploring the different ways that churches talk about race and racism. You would think that there would be a difference ranging from evangelicals to Unitarians and Anabaptists and other liberal religious groups. But what I'm finding is that there are some common threads. First, I'm presenting the church in Annapolis, Maryland, which has an African-American settled minister and is a Unitarian Universalist perspective, and then after, an evangelical church talking about race to its congregation. Let me say to you that our faith, Unitarian Universalism, is officially behind the times. Now, UUCA, UUA, still the most progressive faith that I know of, but it is now lagging behind a little bit on this race issue. The younger generations that have stepped up today will not take step foot in any religious institution that is still debating whether they should be moving toward multiculturalism or learning about white privilege. That's old news. They won't stay. They will walk away. And every UU church that is still struggling with Black Lives Matter signs and whether they're going to adopt the eighth principle or be an anti-racist congregation, if you haven't figured this out, you might as well close your doors. Because this new generation is not going to deal with microaggressions and lack of understanding. They won't have the patience. They're tired and they are being tough on us. And they should be. We've taken too long to make this next big leap. But we can starting today. And so I love these young leaders. Because they're saying that the race train has left the station. And if you ain't on board, I'm sorry, but you missed it. In many ways... What we're experiencing is the ushering out of one generation for the ushering in of another. And in a very cool way, the baby boomers are looking at themselves all over again in these teenagers and 20-somethings. Hey, that was me in the 60s, man. It's a pretty amazing time. It's crazy. but What an incredible time to be alive. And so I'm thankful for this moment in history to be leading you. The ministry we have, of course, is special. Like Harriet Tubman, I, we listen and follow the signs. And one sign that we, this church, our religion, are leading the paradigm shift is that just this week, your minister is in a book that is the number one book in the United States, White Fragility, by our friend Robin D'Angelo. She acknowledged me and others in the back of the book. What does this say? It says our work is relevant. I mean, how would we know that this lady who walked in to help us on our white supremacy culture journey would turn out to be the hottest book in the country. That's confirmation for us. And how that will impact this ministry, I do not know. But it tells me that we are leading the way in for our country. And if you go back and just look at it, you can see it so clearly. We push for marriage equality in Maryland. It's federal law. If you go back in 2008, when I was in the process of becoming your first black minister, it was the same time that President Obama became the first black president of the U.S. We just called our first female minister, Reverend Anastasia Zinke, and I'm sure we will have our first female president in America one day. 
Unitarian Universalism must continue to be a trailblazing faith led by courage and not fear. We must be bold and compassionate and keep being a cutting-edge faith. It was in history where you find us supporting the abolition of slavery when most in the country were not. So we're that religion that ordained women ministers before anyone else. We're the religion that had that first Latino president. The UUA elected its first female president. We are movers and shakers helping to create the collective story of how to be in beloved community and showing the world what needs to change. We're leading a powerful, peaceful revolution. I saw God by the river Penning for gold I saw God by the river Weary and old He said, son I used to know where I put things I used to know What I'm about to do and dive into right now may be difficult for some of you to hear. It isn't easy to ask critical questions about our country's origin and about our own family of origin. During these next moments, you may feel frustrated or defensive or angry or sad or defeated or overwhelmed. If you do, I hope you use that as an opportunity to embrace tension and discomfort because transformation rarely comes easy. So what are we talking about when we talk about race? It's best, I think, to talk about race in contrast to ethnicity. Ethnicity refers to the way people identify with each other based on commonalities and distinctives like language and history, ancestry, nationality, customs, cuisine, and art. But race is different. Race is a social construct, not found in our blood, but created by humans. There was a time when white people weren't white people. They were German and Scottish, and British, and Russian, and French, and Italian, and so on. And to try to see them at that time through a single racial lens would have been inconceivable. But the colonization of America by Europeans changed everything. Before that time, race as we know it did not exist. What happened is what Brian Stevenson, the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, coined as the narrative of racial difference. That is, Differences in race were assigned value and worth. A hierarchy was established based on racial differences to make room for two horrific historical realities, slavery and the annihilation of native people. Race or racial difference is a social construct designed to grant value to some and not to others. It was at this time during the colonization of America that ethnic cultural distinctives such as German and British and Italian and so on began to be de-emphasized and white people began to be seen as a collective group 
who were inherently superior to people of color, specifically black slaves and brown native people. The consequence of this meant that some people were seen as superior and others were inferior. Some were seen as human and others were seen as less than human. Race as a social construct was a necessary theory to make white Christian people feel comfortable with their ownership of other human beings and their attempted extinction of native people groups. How else can you, with an understanding of Genesis 1 and 2 and the gospel of Jesus, quote unquote, being Christian, justify the removal of people from their land and the enslavement of people based on the color of their skin? The only way you can do that is you must make them less human than you. And this is exactly what we see happen in our history. The Declaration of Independence, which you will hear a lot of coming up on July 4th, says this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. However, at the bottom of the Declaration of Independence, it says this, the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. You have to write that in your laws, that all men are created equal and you are, these are savages, they're not men. I saw God in the forest teaching Tai Chi the trees and the wind and bowing to the sea he said son I used to know where I put things I used to know you have to write that in your laws that all men are created equal and you are these are savages they're not men how do you justify enslaving people based on the color of their skin? You have to do the same thing. And this is splashed across the pages of our U.S. Constitution as well. What about the legal principle referred to as the one-drop rule? Any person with even one drop of sub-Saharan African blood was to be considered black, making the message very clear by law. Whites were the superior race and even a single drop of inferior blood contaminated the purity of whiteness. Race is a socially constructed system based on skin color to give inherent value to some people and not to other people. That's race. Now, if that's race, you might ask, what is racism? Racism is a system of advantage based on race. You can't and I can't get around racism in America. I don't care how woke or how non-racist you think you are, this lives in your bones. Actually, in my research, especially a great book I read called White Fragility, the author of that book points out that progressive people are some of the worst carriers of racism and implicit bias because they don't think they are. 
And, the, and ignorance is what makes racism so insidious. And so to all my woke millennial San Franciscan friends who think, oh, this does not pertain to me. I cannot wait to send this to my friend who lives in the South. <laughs> this is you. The quicker you and I can notice it in our own hearts and do gospel work to tear that down, the better. I think Daniel Hill, uh, a white pastor, wrote a, a really great book called White Awake. Clever title. And he says this. He says, the system of race that we've created in America is fraught with sin. And it has, play, it has played a powerful role in shaping the sense of identity of every human being who has lived here. Therefore, it would be naive for devoted followers of Jesus to believe that they can pursue the transformation of identity in Christ without also acknowledging the power of sin as evidenced by the impact of race. Our old self has been profoundly shaped by race. We can't grow into a, a new and redeemed self without naming the presence of that sin, confessing the ways it has impacted us, and doing all we can to break free of its former power. I saw God on a mountain Tearing at the sky I saw God on a mountain With tears in his eyes He said, son I used to know where I put things I used to know I could have shown all the beauty in the world, but now I need you to show me. The other wall that we have to name is our complicity. And this one stings a little bit more in the church to say this in the church. We have to name our complicity with race and racism. Show See, from the 1600s to present day, the American church has been complicit in very specific and pivotal ways that allow racism to survive and embed itself in our society. In the 1600s, the church debated if slaves even had souls and could receive the gospel to be baptized. In 1667, many slave owners who were Christian did not want the gospel to be preached to their slaves because there was a long-standing custom in England that Christians, being spiritual brothers and sisters, could not enslave one another. Slavery in America was an altogether completely different kind of slavery than we see in history and in the Bible. In most cases, slaves could legally marry, own property, they worked for a specific term, not a lifetime. Slaves in other cultures were not born into servitude. They might offer their labor in order to pay off a debt or a land debt they, or if they were captured in war. Slavery was not exclusively a matter of race or ethnicity in other cultures either. Actually, the first 80 to 100 years in America's history, there were both black and white slaves. It didn't start until the, to the, the late 1600s to be specifically a race thing. So I share the pivotal moment in 1667 because here was the message, the message that, was, that has imbibed itself insidiously in the imagination of mainly Christians or mainly white Christian evangelicals ever since. And here it is. Preach to the soul, leave the system alone. This happened through the First Great Awakening, from the antebellum era through to the Civil War from the Jim Crow era through to the Civil Rights Movement, from lynchings 
to bombings and every other unthinkable thing in between, the church has been complicit in this lie, preach to the soul and leave the system alone. You are typically told that it was the church and, 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 and Christian people that worked to take down slavery and segregation and overt acts of racism in this country. And to some degree that is true, depending on the stream of church you're talking about, but it's also true and probably more true that the church has had more to do with the formation of slavery, segregation, and racism before it ever did anything to tear it down. On Good Friday, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. was jailed in Birmingham, Alabama for leading peace marches and boycotts. While he was in jail, eight white pastors wrote Dr. King a letter published in the newspaper, advising him and his team to depart and to let the community handle the race relations for itself. The letter was actually really reasonable. It contended for civil rights, remedies should actually be pursued through the courts instead of boycotts and marches. Actually, it's the reasonableness of the letter that reveals the underlying problem with the church's complicity with racism. Dr. King's response letter, famously known as a letter from Birmingham jail, he writes this, quote, Dr. King says, I have heard numerous religious leaders of the South call upon their worshipers to comply with a desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers say, follow this decree because integration is morally right and the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churches stand on the sidelines and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard so many ministers say, those are social issues which the gospel has nothing to do with. And I have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which made a strange distinction between bodies and souls, the sacred and the secular. He is saying, I am tired of hearing since 1667, preach to the soul and leave the system alone. I'm tired of that. But the system is what Jesus came to destroy. His purpose, why did he destroy the system? Why did he destroy the legal system that divided Jew and Gentile? Why did he do that? His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. And what we must do, especially those who live in the dominant culture, they have to own the walls that have been put up around us. And, and as I'm a part of the church culture that has been complicit with this, I have to own the walls that have been put up in, through my like spiritual lineage. And we have to name these walls that have been put up around us that have built systems of racism for some to have advantage to the oppression of others. That there can be no reconciliation without repentance. There can be no repentance without confession. And there could be no confession without truth. So I'm going to ask you to start doing some work. We must sit with how the Holy Spirit wants to confront us today 
about what we believed, about how we see the world that is not in line with how Jesus sees the world. And we have to lament. I've done a lot of lamenting. And we have to repent. Let's do that now. I have a confession to make. I chose this topic because my own church has struggled for months debating within its own community about whether it's okay to put up a Black Lives Matter sign. And I feel that they're asking the wrong questions. What matters more is, are you becoming a member of a community of people that are different from yourself? And I think the perspectives of the white evangelical Christians in this sermon say more about what it means to wrestle with your own legacy than what I'm getting from my own church community. People in 2020 would love to just feel that it is okay to go vote and to write a check, but that's not going to solve the problem. I think that one of the things that's giving me hope in these days is that when I looked around at who was really wrestling with these issues of racism, to find white evangelicals talking about it in more honest terms than my own church, it tells me that many of the things that we thought would be impenetrable barriers do have cracks in them. Remember that all the people who are saying that about the last four years, not one of them predicted the way in which the world changed. No one could have predicted the year 2020. I'm going to look for allies where I can find them, and I'm going to look for voices and amplify those that I can. Well, this is another one of those uncomfortable topics and soul-searching moments that I hope will become a regular part of your life, too. Please let others know about this and like us on whatever search engine you use to find us. Thank you. Until next time. I saw God on a mountain Tearing at the sky I saw God In his eyes, he said, son, I used to know where I put things, I used to know I could have shown all the beauty in the world, but now I need you to show me.